Are you ready to begin? Sure. Uh, if if it's okay with you, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Just let me know when you want me to start. Can you? Ready. Ready Okay. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guest on your show today. I'm Dr. Joy Pugh, and I'm from Douglas, Georgia, and that's a little town in South Georgia. And I've written several, several books, of which one of them we're going to be talking about today, this my actually latest book that was just released in August of this year. And it's called Special Parables of Joy, Triumphs of the Disabled. And uh, this is a very important book to me because 13 years of my life, I spent working with very seriously handicapped individuals from all walks of life and from really age birth to death. I began my work a long, long time ago when I was in college at Valdosta State College in my undergraduate work with adaptive physical education and started a lot of work with the Special Olympics program. And then after I got out of college, I went on to school, got my master's degree in psychology, guidance, and counseling, and then I got my doctorate in administration and supervision. Throughout the next, I guess, number of years, I worked with, very closely, with the mentally and physically handicapped, of which this book that I've just written is all about, it's about my struggles and all that I went through to make some things happen for some people in my community that literally had been left hanging on the sidelines of life. My work also includes a lot of other books that I have written over the last number of years, and those include books that are eschatology and prophecy books. The names of those particular books that I have that I have written is Antichrist, The Cloned Image of Jesus Christ, Eden, The Knowledge of Good and Evil, 666, it's a volume one and two book. Beguiled, Eden to Armageddon, it's a three-volume book, volume one, two, and three. And then I also have another parables book called Parables of Joy on a Georgia Farm. And that's true stories about me, about, really about my life growing up on a Georgia farm. Then I also have a CD of my original music that I did. It's called Before Time Stops, and it has 12 original songs in which I play all the instruments on that particular album, as well as those original works and songs that I have written. So I've been doing a lot of things uh, really in light of what I feel like God had put me on a pathway to do for most of my life. And uh, I touch on a lot of different things in the work that I do. I mean, it's not only about the handicap, but I you touch on a lot of things in my work, everything from uh, prophecy, nanotechnology, vaccinations, um, strange weather patterns, the things that we're seeing today and the sun, moon, and stars and the changes in the earth and how that lines up with biblical prophecy. I have been very, very involved in a lot of radio shows. I've been featured on the History Channel, and uh, I'm a member of Who's Who in the World and the Daughters of the American Revolution. And so uh, people mean a lot to me, and so my work is about trying to help people gain better understanding that we are not just grains of sand here on this earth, that God has a special purpose for all of us, regardless of what economic status we're thing there is just most important to us to take a good look at and understand that we are a part of what we are because of God's great plan for all of our lives. Joy being able to do the things that I've been able to do and write the work that I've been able to write. That's awesome. That's so cool. Um, if it's okay with you, can you talk a little bit about your book? Yes, I would be glad to. And I'd like to maybe read a little something out of it. So let me pick it up right here and let me kind of read the, the first start of this book so you get an idea about this particular book. 
um, if you'll just hold on right here and let me get to that. Okay. This is uh, really kind of the preface of this book called Special Parables of Joy, Triumphs of the Disabled. And this is what I write. I was led by God to follow my heart into the employment of rescuing those less fortunate from a system that had locked them into a belief of failure. Inadvertently, I also became battered, bruised, and broken by elite members of my own community in order to help the mentally and physically handicapped comprehend that a spirit of true attainment lived within them, which was not bound by the physical world. I knew if my athletes would only believe that the possibility existed for achievement, then their rewards would become endless by grasping that simple belief. Special Parables of Joy, Triumphs of the Disabled, is a collection of stories unlocking the mystery to a unique type of inspiration far beyond one's wildest dreams. These parables involve miraculous achievements based solely on faith to walk an unbeaten path to where God was leading me. Within these pages are the true stories behind an effort to give handicapped people more hope than just what a psychological test, behavioral assessment, or work skills analysis indicated as their final level of human capability. These parables are written in first person. They've been composed to acknowledge the challenges faced by anyone called to assist others who clearly have no political voice in this world. Also revealed are the shocking secrets of an ongoing battle that raged against my crusade to provide opportunities for the less fortunate in my community. As a faithful servant to my destiny, this collection of unique adventures have been compiled as a moving tribute to the disabled, as well as to those who believed in my efforts to make a difference in this world. Through special parables of joy, triumphs of the disabled, certain myths are challenged regarding true human capability, which are not based on whether one is handicapped or not. Once you walk with me across these next pages of history, you will never view the plight of the handicap in the same way ever again. For like me, you too will be touched and forever changed by the unlimited power of a hidden spirit that does exist and live inside all of mankind. We are all made in our Creator's image, and we have a planned purpose as His beloved children within His marvelous creation. That's so, that's, I can totally resonate with that um, for multiple reasons. the main reason why I can relate to that completely about everything that you just said is because I I too am a religious person and I have autism myself. Um, yes. Yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar with what autism is. Um, Yes. Are are you? I'm I'm very familiar. In fact, one of the stories that is in this book is about a young man that I worked with for many, many years whose name was Benji. And he suffered from autism as well as cerebral palsy. And the fact that he was kind of developmentally delayed and it kind of affected his ability to be able able to function on a normal level. So he was placed into um, a facility of uh, a sheltered workshop, which I ran as the director. And he became one of my most outstanding athletes that I had the chance to work with in a lot of ways and very much touched my life. So I'm very familiar with autism and how it affects, you know, different people in different ways. 
But I tell you, that young man named Benji made a profound impact upon my life. And the story that I wrote about him in this particular book, Parables of Joy, Special Parables of Joy, Triumphs of the Disabled, is if anybody has autism and it's felt like that you just could not attain what he was able to do and how far he was able to go, much further than anyone had ever told him he would be able to do, but with the very special spirit that I believe that lives in each one of us, that young man was able to achieve so many great things. And that's kind of what happens when you read this book because there's other people in the book who suffered from blindness, who suffered from the inability to um, to do certain things, who had physical handicaps and other limitations, people who had Down syndrome. So there's a lot of different uh, stories in this book real true stories with real names about real struggles and real achievements that are included in this work. And yes, autism is a very unique uh, type of situation that some people are born into and have to deal with. But like I try to show in my work, everybody in our world has been created in God's image for a very special purpose. And I will tell you, that Benji touched my life in such a way that gave me inspiration to do greater things and probably helped me continue to do the great things in my life because of the inspiration that he gave me. So where I might have been the director and I might have been the coach, in turn, I received the blessing in so many ways. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing when people get the understanding. And I guess that's one reason why I wanted to write this book, Sean, is that I wanted to show that handicapped people are just not here uh, to just kind of stand around and just be there. Everyone has a rhyme and a reason that our, correct, our creator put us here for. And if we look and we understand that, where each one of us fit in into this big puzzle, we come to understand that we are all brothers and sisters and all children of God with great capabilities in ways that sometimes, unfortunately, we've been put into little boxes and tried to keep separate when, in fact, we're all connected and we can help each other through the love of the creator that lives within us. Do you still keep in contact with, with Benji? <clears throat> Yes, all of my clients that I once had, I um, I have not been able to be a, a director for some time now, uh, and I have done other work since that time, but they are all very, very important to me and very much a part of my life um, and very much a part of my prayers every day because I know the struggles <clears throat> they must face, and of course, you know, some of the people that you will read about in my book are now deceased and have gone on to be with the Lord. And, um, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing that I was blessed enough to have these people in my life. And, you know, I could have written a, even a much huge, larger, really, book with huge numbers of more stories. But this day and time, you know, with the, the way that things are, I wanted to do a book that would, you know, would be something would be an easy read. And so my, my book has about 200 pages in it, a little over 200 pages. And, um, and really simple enough for an average person to be able to sit down and read and to enjoy. It's not written in such a way that it's so scientific or whatever. It's almost like us sitting here talking to each other. I wrote it like you were sitting around a coffee table late afternoon having a conversation and saying, let me tell you about somebody who really affected my life, who changed my life, and this is where they started out at in their own life and how they achieved great things. So that's the way that I really wrote this book. And you, you will laugh, you will cry, you will have emotion, and you will see the struggles that I went through as a so-called normal individual without handicap against the people in my own communities, in the district, in the state level to try to get 
the rights of the handicapped to be recognized and the rights for people who could physically do things and mentally do things that were not given a chance because they had some crazy label stuck to their name. So there's a lot of uh, struggle uh, shown in this book about some of the things that I went through and it was very, 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 very difficult, even to the point that my own life was threatened. And so I talk about that and what it was like to try to fight under those circumstances. That must have been so, so difficult for you. Um, I'm so sorry. Well, you know, I always believed that God had a purpose for my life. And like I said in the very beginning, was to really try to help those that were around me have an opportunity at life. Because we are all God's children and you are a brother in Christ to me. And so I don't believe that anyone should ever be below anyone else. You know, God in his scripture tells that he is no respecter of persons and that he loves all his children. In fact, I think that people who have more of a child like mine do better except in Jesus and God and entered into the gates of heaven than some of these normal people who walk around with brilliant minds who don't know how to get out of the rain. And that was one thing I wanted to show in this book of that capability of innocence that is so important in understanding where we are with God. So uh, it's a very important work, and I, and I really do, I don't hide anything. I try to be honest about how I felt, the hurts that I felt, the pain of going through this. But it, in the end, it was a book to really tell people, you know, I guess, the let me just read the back cover of the book, and it kind of tells you, um, how I feel about why I wrote the book. It says, in special parables of joy, triumphs of the disabled, it says that I reveal my crusade to rescue those who society choose to reject. To take on such a challenge in the 1980s and 1990s required strong, dedicated, and compassionate soldiers. While there were many who claimed they cared, if they did not get anything out of helping those who were separated from society, then they quickly extinguished their concern when the going got tough. Thank goodness there were those soldiers, though few, who genuinely were concerned with doing right. They were the ones who went that extra mile, who bore the pain of helping their fellow man, and who with tears in their eyes and bruises all over their body, still loved every minute of being a suffering servant for the cause of righteousness. This is a tribute to all who marched into battle to dispel so many myths surrounding the mentally and physically handicapped. Together we saw the true victory. We witnessed firsthand that within a broken body is a spirit that when given the right opportunities can really fly. That's so cool. Um... I can tell just by just by our conversation up up to this point that you are a very strong, amazing, and special young woman. Well, you know, I appreciate the comments, and I, you know, I was always taught by my mother when I was a little girl, Sean that you should never judge any book by its cover, that you need to get to know the whole person, the real person, every aspect of a person's internalness and not just what was on the outside. Because if you think that pretty and perfect are perfect on the inside, many times it's hiding some terrible, terrible things. And I will honestly say, that beauty does not lie in the outside of a person. Beauty lies on the inside of a person. And I'm thankful I that I had a mother that taught me that as a young girl. I would totally agree with you. Um, when, when you were the director of that program, <clears throat> did, did, were you the type of person that, that works with your 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 um, clients with um, eye contact, or did did you were you the type of person that 
just um, it whether or not your your clients made eye contact with you it didn't bother you. No, there was one thing that was most you know unique about me. You know, most times people who are directors typically have, um, uh, I, you know, I had, oh my gosh, a huge staff that worked every day with my clients. But there was one thing that I always said, every day I'm going to have contact with all of my clients. The ones that were on outreach, that were out in the field, and I had to make a, you know, a trip to their home or whatever to do that. But the people who were in the facility with me, that were in the sheltered workshop, there was not a day that I didn't have some type of hands-on experience. And I talk about this because I did things, I mean, they were being taught on how to maintain cooking, maintain clothing, maintain grooming. They were being taught on how to do certain skills, you know, work skills and that nature. But I wanted to know the person. I was after trying to find the spirit that was in those people. And what was it that could drive them to a higher level to experience life? You know, working, all work and no play makes anybody a dull person. So I was always looking to find something in the athletic field, something that they would, could do that could prove that they could achieve it, something they never thought they could do. I loved music. I incorporated music in, into the, the paradigm of teaching and uh, things that happened at the facility where I was the director. So, for example, I established a Sunnydale, the name of the place was Sunnydale, ensemble. I started out with a young man who was blind, and he was able to sing quite well. His name was Johnny, and he's also a story in the that he was able to learn to memorize things. And in memorizing things, he was able to start singing songs. And I played the piano. And what happened was, in working with him on a daily basis, my other clients who had all different kinds of problems, even someone that couldn't even hear, they could feel the beat of the piano and the way I played it with my foot kind of tapping the cement, they could keep the beat and play the tambourine perfectly. So I developed a rhythm band with certain people that could sing and could remember the words, even some that could come in on the chorus or come in on one word because that was all they could remember. But I will tell you the way that I did that was when I sat down to work with them, I made them focus. In other words, we talked to each other. I didn't talk looking at the wall. I didn't talk looking at the floor. I talked looking at them. And so to me, eye contact was very, very critical to help them establish what they could do. Um, so one-on-one one -on -one was very, very important to me every day. And I was there 13 years. And I will tell you that it was, if it were on the athletic field, whether I had them in the music room, whether I had them in the computer room or the weightlifting room or out on a Special Olympics, you know, field or at some kind of event or if they were absolutely working, um, you know, on, um, on learning how to vacuum or clean or whatever, that, you know, it was still teaching them the right way, giving the encouragement and having that one-on-one -on -one involvement. So if they had any questions or if they looked puzzled, and in some cases I had, you know, people who could not speak and could not hear. And so there was sign language. And then I had people who did not and were not able to communicate because of their you know, level of mentality. So I had to use other techniques. And, you know, I was able to really, really developed some quite unique ways of working with these people. Uh, and, you know, I kind of share some of that, you know, in this book as well. So uh, I, I feel like, you know, when somebody's working with me, I want them to focus on me and to look at me and to talk to me. And a tone of voice as if I'm their friend and I'm there to help. Not to complain, not to put down, and not to be over. I try to treat as, as I would want to be treated.
That makes total sense. Um, I was I was only asking that question because there's there's a lot of programs out there that have um, separate programs for eye contacts, and there's some disability programs that um, work on other things besides eye contact. So I was just wondering which which program that which program you were focusing on that um it it really depended on the person's level of capability and how I could best communicate with them. So when I look you know, in other words, I didn't walk out there and say everybody's got to do it this way. I never put people ten people in a box together. Um, everybody's different. So when I sat down to do an individual service plan, that service plan was individualized to that individual and whatever it took to help that person achieve was what I was after. And that was the most important thing to me is to help them achieve. And what level I had to, you know, go at it and how I had to go at it was what was so important to me. What are your thoughts on the saying, one size fits all? One what did you say? What are your thoughts and, and opinions on the saying, one size fits all? Oh, I'm I'm so odd myself, <laughs> Sean. I don't fit into the same box with anybody else. I mean, I I have always been a person, and my mother used to always say that I walked to a different beat. And I can honestly say, I was at six years of age. I played. I started playing the drums, and so I've always said I walked to a different beat. And I guess that's why God chose me to do what I do is because I never uh, have ever felt like everybody could be in the same box because I didn't fit in that box. And yeah. once you understand, you, <laughs> you've got to, you know, it, it did not make me feel like I was um, different and, you know, and, and um, that I didn't have a right to be able to do other things like other people. It just taught me that maybe doing it another way, I might be more successful at it than like everybody else was learning it. Um, I took, for example, I took six years of piano um, with a lady that taught classical piano. So she believed everybody should play Bach and Beethoven and that you had to play every note and you had to know every note and you had to memorize all these notes. And I literally hated it. And I was a musician, and I wanted to be able to play the, the piano when I was little. But I wanted to be able to sing and enjoy the music. And so what I found, that if I memorized the, the, the chords, like I memorized the chords for my guitar, then I could play guitar with chords better than I could play lead guitar, because I took lessons for lead guitar. Like I can play the piano to anything I want to play, now, but classical music was just not my thing, and reading every note wasn't not it just didn't fit in my ability to to do that. And so, if I had just said, "Okay, to play the piano, I've got to learn classical music, and I've got to play these notes, and I've got to sit here and practice and practice and practice," it's something that I hate more than anything, then I would have never become a great musician. I had an album, or wrote my own songs. You know, and, and, and I can sit down to play anything using chords. But trying to do it the other way didn't work for me. So if I had stayed like that, I'd have probably been in a music class, been getting under, you know, her, a C and a D, barely passing, where if you had heard my music and heard my songs and, and listened to how I play today in church and everything, you would have said, oh, I, I bet she was a great <laughs> musical student and she probably got straight A's but if it's the different way of learning that I achieved greatness at what I was able to do where if I'd stayed in that paradigm of this is the only way to do it 
I would have never done that, Sean. I would have never been able to play the piano. I feel like it's really important to be able to identify what your learning style is. Um, um, for example, and I could be wrong, um, but this is, I'm going by the, the, the research that I've done, um, but based on the research I've done, there's, there's, there's four different learning styles. The first learning style is, is a visual. Some people learn by seeing. The second learning style is audio. Auditory. Some, some people learn by listening and hearing. Mm -hmm. The third learning style is reading and writing. Some people learn best by um, copying things down. And the, the fourth learning style is kinesthetic. And that learning style means that, that some people learn best by doing and trial and error and doing things on their own time. Um, I feel like it's really important to figure out which of those learning styles you are. And yeah. also sometimes, sometimes your learning style is a, is a combination of, of those four. Um, exactly. And after you identify what your learning style or styles are, then you, you can use that knowledge in such a way that you can um, master yourself, I guess. Would you agree? Uh, yes, and I will say this, you know, when I was, um, you know, a coach for Special Olympics, and I coached International Special Olympics, I coached uh, athletes that competed in the world International Special Olympics against other countries. I'm at the top of your level of game playing and, and, and athletic capability. And what I found, like in normal, average athletes, there are some people who are just born with a natural gift. And so if I was, let's say, um, one of the stories that I have is uh, in my book about two Down syndromes that learned to play golf and actually became state champions. Um, being able to hold a golf club requires a certain placement of your left hand, right hand, and being able to grasp the finger, little finger of the, if you're right-handed, to the forefinger of the left hand and wrap it around the club. And, and what I found in working with different people was that that sometimes is a great way to teach people and maybe what we call the correct placement of hands. But for a person who has a natural ability to just pick up a club and hit a ball 200 yards, when you start trying to change that way of holding the club to fit the norm and put them in a box, then they can't hardly hit the broad side of a barn. Where yeah, if yeah. you let them use their normal, what, what I call natural talent, it is amazing what they can do. And I will say that a lot of your great pianists, you know, um, you know, they're kind of born with that talent. I had a uh, Down syndrome uh, young man that um, could say three sentences. He could say, I'm my mama's baby. He wanted a cocoa, and he thought he had cancer. And that's the three things he would say off and on all day. If you ask him a question, he could answer the question like yes or no. But he could sit down at a piano and rock a piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Never have ever had one musical lesson. You know, and to be able to watch that and perceive that here's someone with an inability to do this, but then transcend anybody out there and be at, at the same level 
of somebody that could play a piano, you know, at the top of their game was amazing to me. Did, so, did, um, did, did he have perfect pitch? He, he did not sing. All he did was play the piano. He, he could not oh. speak really well. He, he was not very functionable. But when you and I just say, hey, bud, how about going over and playing me a song on the piano? He would go over there, sit down, and just tear the piano. I'm talking about go up and down the keys. Not just playing in one place, but I'm telling you, just like Jerry Lee Lewis, popping them things up and down, his keys would just be vibrating. So he just had that ability. It was a natural ability. And I guess what I'm trying to say is when you have natural ability, if I said, no, you've got to play it like this, you can't play it like that. He couldn't have played the piano like I would have tried to sit down and, and like my teacher was trying to teach me. It requires that there's natural talent to find natural talent and let it develop itself. Or if somebody's willing to try to learn a talent, you start them off with what is correct. Maybe that everybody has used holding a bat or holding a golf club or, you know, doing anything of that nature. And then build on it and encourage. So I saw people who had natural talent that I was able to build on. And then I saw people who did not have any talent that I was able to teach how to do and then have them excel in it because they had that mindset that they could do it and didn't have that negative thought, oh, well, I'm handicapped. I can't do anything. Nobody thinks I'm smart, and I'm just going to sit here in the corner. I wanted people not to have that mentality. So that was the thing. Everybody that came into my program, uh, you know, from the time they were born to the, the ones that, that actually died under um, the time that they were there that, you know, became in their 80s. I had some athletes that were 80 years old that went and competed oh, wow. in different kinds of things. And my youngest athletes, they actually started at age six. And uh, and so, you know, I I was already working with people when they were very young to develop these skills so that if they were mainstreamed into let's say, normal school settings, that they would not be limited. Let's just say that they were in the special ed program, but if they had physical talents, let's say a playing football. I mean, I had, I had a state-winning soccer team for several years. And, you know, every one of my people on that team were all broken up and, you know, they had all kinds of issues, mental and physical. Uh, everything from seizures, you just can't, everybody was different. But I'm going to tell you, they were all great athletes. And there were some of those people on that team that could have played on a high school soccer team and been superstars because they were that talented. So, I, I mean, you know, limiting people in one area, my intent was to find what can you excel at so that if you get out in the public, and you want to go down to the tennis courts and somebody's down there playing tennis that you can walk up and say, want to play a game? You know, if you're if you're outside and everybody's shooting basketball or you ain't got to stand around and think, well, you know, I, I'm handicapped. I got cerebral palsy and my legs are all bent up. I, I have an, a, a story in my book about Charles who was literally bent and broken every kind of area you can imagine with cerebral palsy. And he wanted to learn to play basketball. And I said, hey, he started out in developmental sports, couldn't even throw the basketball. And before he was through, he was playing on my high school mainstream team that had half handicap, half not handicap. They won the state championship. And he was dunking. Oh, wow. He was dunking the ball. I mean, you know, he grew tall and was just, oh, my gosh, became an excellent. But, you know, if he just sat on the sidelines a lot and said, I'm all broken up, I'll never be able to do this and don't ever give him the chance, he would have never seen. And so now, you know, instead of being handicapped, he's gone on with his life and he lives in Florida and he, he's a, a chef and he's got his own life, you know. But if he had, didn't, I had not picked him up off the floor that day and said, let me worry about anybody laughing about you. This is what I want you to learn to do and I'm going to teach you how to do what you want to do. And he listened. And that story is in my book and he's a success today at what he does. He's not sitting around waiting for somebody to hand him something. You know, he's literally gone on with his life, has children, you know, he's been married. I, it's just, I want people to understand in this, in this research and all this stuff that I did, that, it, that there was 
um, there was proof of success because of belief in oneself and somebody taking the time to find what it was that helped you take that next step. My dissertation in my doctorate program was um, to decrease the obesity in the mentally retarded adult population. And, and when I say mental retardation, I don't mean that in a negative light, but that's when I was in school because I'm in my 60s. When I was in school and when I was doing everything was mental retardation, it wasn't development of disabled and that developmentally challenged and all the other terms they've come up with since then. So when I bring up that, I don't want someone to think I'm being in, not sensitive to that. But that's what my dissertation was about. And so I wanted to show that everyone in that program could meet the presidential sports award and do the same thing as normal people. And everybody in my dissertation research project met the challenge, everybody that I worked with. And they all got big certificates from uh, President George Bush at the time. So, you know, it just shows that when you take the time to teach people and train and explain and work with and find that commonality, that you can just take people into levels that they never dreamed of. And in turn, again, I want to say, in my doing that with those individuals, they changed my life. They prepared me for great things that were going to happen in my life. And one of the things that was very tragic that I had to deal with is that I had to take care of my mother, my grandmother, and my husband for 20 years after all this happened with all my clients. They all became very, very handicapped. And because of the work that I had done, it helped me deal with my own family and what they had to go through and the struggles of being able to fight for their rights. And that's one thing that a lot of people who have family members sit back because they don't feel like they have a voice and nobody's willing to listen. And I just never took that stance. I was like, I'll find somebody if I have to call it, you know, Atlanta, or Georgia, because I live in Georgia, or if I can't find them in Atlanta, I'll call Washington, D.C. But there's somebody out there that can help me with this particular problem that I've got and not being able to do what needs to be done for a particular individual. I had a person that was in a wheelchair that literally could not get on a bus without a, wheel, without a bus lift, you know, and they didn't want to fund that. Well, you know, that was making him have to crawl up the steps to get on our bus because nobody could physically lift him onto the bus. So, you know, I just, I just sat down and said, there's got to be a way. And before it was all said and done, we had a nice bus with a lift to pick up that man and bring him in to work every day and take him to Special Olympics and let him compete and do different things. So it's how far are you willing to go? How far are you willing to put yourself and your life and your time and your energy on the line to help other people? And I'm just so thankful that, again, I had parents who, who really taught me to treat everybody equal and to really care about my fellow man. And, I, and, and all the work that I do and all the writings I do and all the things I write about biblical prophecy and the days in which we're living, I write about this stuff because I care not only about a person's physical well-being, I care about the, their eternal soul and where that's going to end up. Because every soul that's on this planet, whether you're in a so-called handicapped body or a so-called normal body, one day when you get to heaven, that capability that you didn't have in that body won't be there anymore. You know, you'll be like you would and could be in the eyes of God, all of us, because we, even in what we call normal and put in that bell curve, we aren't reaching our potential. I don't think that I reach my potential every day. You know, I think that I'm handicapped by certain things, just like I was talking about the music in certain areas, that there's certain things that I couldn't do that one day when I get to heaven, I'll be able to do that. So it won't be like, well, you know, you're handicapped on earth, so therefore you got this. Everybody will get to the level of what God intended us all to have. So we'll spend eternity like that. So it's important that our souls end up in heaven and not hell. Because we don't want the torment of what life has been like here on this old earth. We want the opportunity to have paradise with God the Father in a perfected body, in one that far exceeds anything that we are presently able to do in the physical here. So, you know, my work encompasses all of that. It's more about the whole person, Sean, not about just 
one thing here and there. And unfortunately, most people just want a paycheck. They don't want to work with people. I, I see that in the medical field. I dealt with that um, with people that I would hire. You know, I would say, look, my expectation is that you're going to spend a lot of time here. It can't be about an eight to four job with one paycheck. You've either got to love this and want to give to it of yourself or you don't need to work for me. And I will tell you, I had a lot of turnover because if I told somebody that and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do this and I, I love helping people. If they did not do that and if I found any client who came to me and said, even in, in my book I mentioned this, if I had a client that would come to me and they knew that they could come to me in private and say, Mr. or Miss So-and-so is not treating me right or they're doing this or they don't act like they care. When I had a client come to me, I knew that they weren't coming to say, well, I just don't want to have to do something because they knew that if they did wrong about that and I found out that they were going to be in trouble. But if they knew they could walk in my office and sit down and have a conversation with me or try to tell me something that I had one thing in mind, their best interest. And if I found out that a staff member was not doing what they ought to do, they were history. And I got a lot of slack about that because, you know, you have to pay unemployment and all kinds of things. But I'm like, I'm not going to have a person working with people who depend on them 24-7 and they're not giving their best. How, um, uh, how important would you say to, 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 um, to be 100% sure that what – that either what your, what your clients are saying or yourself are saying is is correct. Well, you know, you have to use some discernment. You have to really, truly use some discernment. And I guess God gave me the blessing of discernment. Because if you give somebody enough rope, a liar will hang themselves. One thing about a handicapped person that I always found out, if you ask a question in a different way, if they were lying, they usually couldn't answer that question back that they had originally told you. If they were telling the truth, they could stand there today, tomorrow, the next day, and tell you that same thing over and over and over again. And clients were to the point that they needed someone to help them. And they knew that beyond anything that I was strict, they knew what I expected. But they knew that I loved them better than anything in the world. They did not want to lose that respect. And then my staff, you know, if they were lying, they were going to slip up some way, one way or another. A good example was I had a bus driver that was not supposed to be allowing anybody to eat on the bus for fear of some which, you know, could get choked. Yeah. And, um... She pulled through the Dairy Queen to get herself something and hit the awning of the Dairy Queen with the bus. And then she told the clients that they better not tell anybody that they had done that. Well, I happened to be up in the town where it happened with my mother that afternoon, and we came up by the Dairy Queen, and I said, well, my gosh, somebody tore the awning off of the, the Dairy Queen. So the next day, I had my person that was over the bus, come in and tell me that um, supposedly one of the bus drivers had drove up under a pecan limb to pick up somebody at their house and had dented the bus. And I said, oh. And they said, well, the only thing weird about it is it's kind of got some red paint on it. And I said, well, let me check it. Let me check that bus out. And I went out there, and sure enough, I could see that that was red. And I'm thinking, well, that's really interesting that that awning at that Dairy Queen was red. So one of the clients got brave enough to come in to the person that was over the buses and say that they had been threatened not to tell something. And sure enough, I called the Dairy Queen, and they told me who was driving the bus <laughs> and the bus driver and what happened. So, you know, I always did the research. I really didn't just jump to conclusions. I did the investigation. But I can honestly say that every time I did that, I found the culprit. It might take a little longer. And if a client had come to me and told me something and I couldn't be assured, I'd say, you know, to the client, yes, I'm going to take care of this. I need for you to go back and I need for you to do this. Anything else happens, you come back and explain it to me. They knew that I was seeing about it. 
and it would it would never fail, Sean, I'd find out the truth. And then I would deal with it, you know, and in, in, in that case, it was it was uh, to, to, you know, to tell somebody that they were terminated as a as an employee. So those those kinds of things were things that I dealt with on a daily basis. And of course, the biggest thing I guess that I wor- worried about more than anything was people who would uh, abuse clients, you know, either be uh, physical or sexual. And so I had to be very conscientious of, um, you know, sexuality and what was going on and what clients would say and what they were doing and who was with them and where they were at. So there was a lot of things that were required to be on top of. And, of course, I built complexes and independent living complex where people lived independently. And I had a house uh, apartment manager that stayed there on the premises with them. And then I built personal care homes where the person had uh, you know, a person that rotated out in and out about every eight to 12 hours. And then there were residents who lived in the rooms and then they came into one area to eat. So there was a lot of things. It was almost like running a college. You had people there 24 seven, you had employees working 24 seven. And, you know, there was just something going on 24 seven, travel out of town. You know, you go to special Olympics who were traveling a long ways. And like I say, I had athletes that were traveling and playing against the Russians and the China, you know, Chinese and things like that. So, there was a lot of responsibility that I had to keep my eyes very well open and, and listening and paying attention and being, you know, on top of the game. And I loved every minute of it, but it required almost every minute of my life. And thank goodness I had a wonderful husband and uh, a wonderful cat that, that allowed me to do those kinds of things and look after. I, I guess that's one reason that God never allowed me to have children is he knew I was going to be looking after a lot of children and a lot of adults, and that's exactly what I enjoy doing. And 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 like I say, this book, Parables of Joy, Special Parables of Joy, Triumphs of the Disabled. That's what this little book is all about. So I, I'm praying that your listeners, you know, will get a copy of it. Uh, it's available at my website. They can go to www.drjoy, and that's D-R-J-O-Y-E, Joy with an E, dot com. And you can click on the link, and it will take you to the publisher. And all you have to do is purchase the book from the publisher on that link, and they will mail it out to you. And um, hopefully, if you get a copy of it, that you will send me a, you know, a, a statement. I have a little form there on my website that you can fill out. This is a submission form to tell me how you enjoyed the book, or if you've got any questions you know, about some of the things that I dealt with that might help you, I'll be glad to answer those as well. I have a, a Dr. Joyce Ask Me Anything show that comes on YouTube every last Monday night of each month. It's the last Monday night of each month on YouTube from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. It's called Dr. Joyce AMA Ask Me Anything. And I answer questions that people send to me on my my uh, website there at drjoy.com and um, and it's always fun because I get a lot of different questions so if you've got a question for me I'll be glad to take that question and answer it on an upcoming AMA and I will use your first name I do not usually use uh, the first and last name but I can use your first name or if you want to remain anonymous you can just put anonymous and I'll just say this is the question from anonymous so um, I have a lot of ways of kind of, you know, dealing with people and working with people. Have you ever thought about having a three-step hiring process? Um, um, the first step would be having a Skype, having a phone interview. The second section would be having a video interview. And the third would be having a in-person interview. Um, sure, but, sure. But I've done all. Re- I've done all those. Yes. The reason why I'm asking is because the the more steps you have for hiring, the harder it is for um, candidates who don't who don't match your requirements to um, slip in. Um, yes, yes. See, when I when I when I ran the, the center, you know, um, back in the in the 1980s and 1990s, when I ran that center, everybody had to have a face to face interview with me. 
I mean, they filled out their paperwork. They gave me the recommendations. They had to, you know, pass drug tests. They had to go through a whole series of, of you know, things, um, you know, criminal background checks, all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, we did everything. And then I had a sit-down, you know, session with them with two other people that would be, you know, in the department where they were at, the supervisors. And then once we narrowed it down to one or two, we might interview 15 candidates. We may interview 20 candidates for a particular job. And then once we got down to one or two, then I took them one-on-one -on -one to ask questions and interviews. So, yes, it was a very um, uh, strategic type of interview process. It wasn't real, very quick, come in and, hey, I think you'll be good for the job and <laughs> start tomorrow. <laughs> it didn't have anything. It was never like that. I, I guess my second to last question to you is, um, are, are you for, against, or neutral when it comes to ABA? Uh, well, when you now when you talk about ABA, what are you talking about? Because I might I don't want to get the wrong thing. Um, we're referring to applied behavior analysis. Okay. Because, I mean, all those different, all that stuff has changed, like ISP, IEPs, all those different names have changed. And I didn't want to, because I know even with my DSM-3 diagnosis codes, they're different now. Uh, when I look at um, assessments, you know, I gave psychological tests, I did behavioral assessments, I did all those, you know, assessment, assessment, assessments on people. Um, I, I take that with a you know, it's kind of like when you go down to the doctor and you're not feeling well and he says, I think I'm going to run some blood work and I think I'm going to do a chest X-ray or whatever. Those are just instruments sometimes that you can use to give you a broad sense of something, maybe to weed out a little something here or weed out something like that. But my thing was, and that's why I was able to achieve what I did with the people that are in this book. I didn't let the psych because the psychological would psychological test would have told me that Johnny could have never memorized song after song after song in his head. A psychological test on my Down syndromes would have said they could have never played golf, they could have never understand how to get a handicap, they would have never known how to choose their own clubs. They could da 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 da. If I had looked at those things, like the predecessors of the people that I came after, my predecessors had done then they'd have stayed right there and never done anything that they were able to do under, you know, uh, my leadership. So um, it's kind of like when you get blood work and if something's a little bit out of whack, you know, do you put yourself through all this other stuff or you, do you wait or, you, you know, do you change your diet? Do you do this to make things better? I was always looking for what will make this better. And so I wasn't always tied in to an assessment being my number one, I guess, reasoning behind something. It was there to justify, maybe if I had to say I've got to place this person, and, and let's just say I did a um, an assessment on somebody's ability to shoot and play basketball. This is just simple. If they couldn't throw the ball but so high and couldn't catch a ball and they couldn't do this, then I needed to put them in developmental sports, okay? like I did Charles, but I kept working with Charles till Charles got to be on a regular basketball team and could slam dunk the ball. So if I had said, you can never do anything but shoot this little goal that's only about four foot high, then he would have never gotten where he was based on the first assessment. So I, I'm not, you know, I don't hold, I did not hold people to what a psychological test always told me. Because I've, I've done psychological tests on normal people, and if they didn't have a huge vocabulary, there's words on psychological tests like, you know, ominous, the word ominous. Well, if you are from South Georgia in, in the backwoods, then you might be brilliant. If you've never really read something that had ominous in it, you might not understand. What, what, what? I've never heard that word. Well, if you never heard the word, then... Am I going to say, well, your mentality is a less IQ because you don't know the word ominous and you can't give me the definition of it?
But see, psychological tests would do that. They give you a lower score because you don't know what ominous means. And you should know what ominous means if you're supposed to be 140 IQ. That's not necessarily correct. So those are the things that I challenged in my work. And so I, I was always very careful about how much I used analysis. Uh, they were just like a baseline, if that makes sense. But I didn't hold somebody to that forever. Did you also know that Bill Gates and Albert Einstein had autism? Yes, and I, and you know, that's the thing is that even with working with Benji, the story that I have of him is his fascination with pinwheels and how he could look at the mechanics. He was absolutely involved in the mechanics, and so his ability to watch that pinwheel spin around and around. I, if I did it about ten times, I was sick. <laughs> I can't get on a whirly gig without throwing up. You know, he could he could literally follow this stuff with his eyes. He never got sick. He could ride any kind of thing at the fair, and he was literally locked into that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I see the, like I say, I could just see that same capability in the Down syndrome that had the ability to play the piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I understand that you have to be careful about when you're saying somebody is handicapped and they, you may be missing the genius in them. Two of my role models who have autism, who I really admire, are Bill Gates and Albert Einstein. Um, yes, I've, I've studied Albert Einstein a, a whole, you know, a whole lot. Um, did you know that he had autism? Yes, I did. And you know, the thing is, there's other. I was trying to think. There's another. I've used things like Stephen Hawkins, the way that he got into what he's got into, and he couldn't do certain things, but his mind and he's able to still do, but even his body's not functioning. Um, you know, you you kind of see that the mind can be brilliant when the outside of the body may not be, and that's what I was saying earlier that not being, you know, not judging a book by its cover, because you can't really tell the truth about, you know, the genius there. Um. Do you have any um, words of encouragement and wisdom that you want to share to the the listeners? Oh, I think yeah. I think that. Um, let me just read this. I think this is this is what I'd like to read to end our session today, because it's the epilogue of this book. And I think it really tells you how I feel. Had I succumbed to the constant stream of discouragement, which I found all around me, I would never have experienced the miracles I witnessed during the 13 years of giving my heart and soul to the plight of serving the mentally and physically handicapped. Living under an umbrella of discouragement where anything different from the norm should not exist can be a little bit frustrating, whether one is handicapped or not. Working diligently with people who have had and been handed a preconceived existence by society to be separated from the rest of humanity and only pitied brought about a crude awakening in my soul. Unfortunately, society handles many issues by secretly pushing anything not to its advantage under a rug of concealment. The problem with sweeping innocent crumbs under a rug in order to hide them does not mean those crumbs have ceased to exist. The crusade to rescue those which society chooses to reject required me to be strong and dedicated. And as you know, me trying to use people as soldiers, and there were quite a few who went there with me to help me, they literally marched into battle to help me dispel so many myths surrounding the mentally and physically handicapped. And if I can leave you and your listeners with anything, I witness firsthand that within broken bodies is a spirit that when given the right opportunities can really 
fly. That is, I'm, I'm honestly um, speechless now about, I don't know what, what you said is, is so amazing. Um, do you have any questions for me? Well, the, the thing that um, I want to be able, you know, to just um, say to you is that I admire what you're trying to do to try to reach the people who need to hear about this. And I'm so honored that you allowed me to be your guest on your show. And I hope that you will be able to do some other things on some of the other books and other works that I've done just to continue this dialogue of how important we all are as the children of God. So I, I guess my questions are just, they're not really questions, they're just to tell you how amazed I am um, at you having this show and, and just want to say it's amazing that you have taken this into your life to try to change other people and make them see the trueness the ability and um, and the compassion that we should have as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ because that's what's most important. So I just want to commend you for, for what you're doing. I, I just think it's amazing. I, I, I think it's truly amazing. And I feel very honored to have had the opportunity to be on your show and to get to know you, Sean. I, I got just, just as much out of it as you did. Well, I pray that we can do, you know, some upcoming shows uh, with with more of my work and uh, and continue our dialogue on on helping people understand how important it is for everybody to be treated equal. I will email you um, a couple of day, a couple of dates that I'm available um, um, in the upcoming um, hours if that, if that's okay with you. That will be great, and I look forward to doing your show again. Excellent. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. Thank you too, Sean. God bless you.